Uh, I want to turn to you to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to look at a verse where it's probably not very well known to you. No, I'm joking. Sorry, one of the most well known verses in all the Bible. John 3, uh, verse 16. Now, for the sake of context, we're going to read verse 21, but we are only going to deal with chapter, uh, verse 16 today. So, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray as we come to the word of God. Lord, we ask again this morning that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, Lord, to hear what you are saying to us, Lord, to speak directly to us, and again, show us the wonder, the immensity, the incredible sacrifice of your Son and the wonderful love, Lord, that you have. Why don't you impress these upon us, Lord. Change our hearts continually by them and mold and shape us to be like your Son. May this all at your feet. Amen. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. A famous verse. In fact, so famous that even unbelievers know it. And they probably know it because people hold it up at sports events all the time. But it is an incredibly powerful verse. It is a wonderful verse. That's why Christians throughout the ages have rightly championed it as a, a core frame of how we see the gospel, of how we, we see Christ, and how we, we relate to God. It's a verse that is incredible. Because that is very outset and is asking questions that we have no answer for. The first phrase, for God so loved the world, begs the question, why? Why would he love us so? I mean, we've been looking here in John chapter 3 at uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And just to recap you a little bit of the last few sermons, uh, Nicodemus, he is part of this very strict sect called the Pharisees. They love the Scriptures. In fact, they love the Scriptures and cherish them so much that they've added a whole bunch of extra rules so they wouldn't break the ones they already have. That's how much they cherish and honor the Word of God. But in their cherishing and their honoring, they've forgotten what faith is all about. They've forgotten the sense of the kernel of their religion. And they've thought that they could earn God's grace simply through their efforts simply through their obedience to the law, as strict as it could be. Nicodemus, though he comes secretly at night to Jesus, seems to bring all these things with him. And so Jesus begins to teach him about salvation, starting first of all with the first thing that he needs to see the kingdom. You need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be born again, because if you're not born again, you are not going to see God. No one comes to the Father 
No one has salvation or eternal life unless the Spirit Himself has birthed them anew. And this teaching shocked him. He didn't quite understand it. He said, what are you talking about? And Jesus had to explain to him what that means. It's, it's been there in the scriptures the whole time. You, you need a new heart. You are so fundamentally broken, so fallen, so sinful, that all of you need to change. You need an entirely new being. You need to be a new creation. For without that, well, you cannot be pleasing to, the God, to God. And that can only happen to the Holy Spirit, who opens eyes. This is the new birth we talked about, regeneration. And that is a shocking thing to someone who thinks they can earn their religion or who can earn their favor with God because to be born in the Spirit means that it is in the Spirit's sovereignty. He's like the wind. He goes where he wants and he does what he wants. Jesus explains. You didn't earn him. You can't coerce him. You can't bend his arm. He will do what he does. He will open the eyes of those he chooses and you will birth those you must. It is an entirely God-centered gospel, and it starts with the Holy Spirit, and it points to Jesus Christ. The second thing that he, he says to Nicodemus, not the second, but at least the second how I'm putting it today, is that it's the Son of Man who will draw. Once he will be lifted up, like Moses lifted up the fiery serpent, or the bronze serpent in the desert, and once he has done that, he will draw men to himself. And that is a reference to how we enter into salvation, the object of our salvation, the one who will cure from death, the one who will give life when all that we've had known before that is weakness, Satan's grasp, and the wrath of God. He is challenging Nicodemus every fundamental of his religion to show him the better way. And he continues to do that. Starting first and foremost with the words, for God so loved. Now the problem is in our day and age, and maybe even for Nicodemus, those words lack impact. For God so loved. I think I've told you the story before when I was in high school, and I was a zealous young Christian who had very little knowledge, at least how to share the gospel, but a lot of zeal to go with it. And I remember sitting next to my friend in history class, because I mean, who did any work in history class? And uh, I wrote to him on a piece of paper, Jesus loves you. Because that's, you know, evangelism. And he read it and he was like, oh, thanks, man. That was a lot. I mean, where's your life change? Why is he not repenting? Why is he not rending his garments and giving his life to Christ? Why does a statement like Jesus loves you mean nothing to him? Because that's actually the issue we have. We have taken the love of God in our culture, in our, our society, because we are a post-Christian society. We've taken concepts like that for, for granted. Most people, if they grew up in a semblance of a Christian home, or at least in the Christian culture, presume upon the love of God. Why wouldn't God love me? That's the most obvious thing in the world. I'm His creation. Wouldn't He love what He created? I mean, for God to love the world, I mean, that's not a shocking statement. That's a, an obvious statement to them. I'm so lovable. Why wouldn't God give everything he has to save me? In fact, isn't that how we twist the gospel? We almost be about ourselves. We, we look at it and we say, well, I'm so valuable. I'm so wonderful. I'm so great. Surely God would want to stretch out his hand 
and give me everything that he could. That's not how the Bible presents the story to us. For God so loved is such a profoundly incredible statement when you know what God actually thinks of us. That it borders on the line of why. I mean, we've looked at this over and over, but the gospel is founded on the fact that we deserve only one thing from God as human beings. Condemnation for all eternity. That is, if God were to give us exactly what he should, it would not be love, it would not be grace, it would not be mercy, but it would be hellfire for all eternity. We know this over and over in the scriptures. Paul goes to great lengths in the book of Romans to show us. Romans chapter 3, God's estimation of mankind is simply this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paws are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a summation paragraph. That is not just Jews, but that is Gentiles too. That is everyone. Paul says, when God looks at us, that is what he sees. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Ephesians 2, which I preached on a little earlier this year, again reminds us of what we were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, I summed it up in three statements for you when I preached it. One, we are dead. That means in our sins and our trespasses, when God looks at us, we are dead to Him. There is nothing we can possibly do to win His approval, to win His favor, or to win His forgiveness. Not a single thing, for we are as our dead men in the ground. We are also those who are alienated from Him and under the power of Satan. We were those who followed our Father, and our Father is the one who lies, the one who murders. The one who has done those things from the beginning. The one who has authored sin. Hence, sin is very close to our hearts. We follow Satan whether we like it or not. And we are children of wrath, or we were at least. Children of wrath is probably one of the most frightening statements that God can make of us. That means because of our sin, because of our father Satan, because of who we are and where we were, the only thing God would show us is wrath. Righteous justice, wrath. Because that is the only thing our sins deserve. That is the only thing our rebellious hearts could earn from God. It is unquenching anger. His righteous judgment. There's a story in Ezekiel that always makes it make sense to me. 
Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm not going to read it because it's very long, but I'll sum it up to you. Uh, in the beginning, the first half, that God sort of summarizes, he, he looks at Israel, his people, and he says, this is what you were like. You were from nowhere and from nobody. You didn't have a past. You came from just tribes that I hated. And you were like a baby that was born and no one even cared to clean it. And you were thrown into a field. And you were there wallowing in your own blood. And I came upon you and I saw you and I loved you. And I said to you in your blood, live. In fact, he repeats that twice because it's so important. He gives everything to Israel, right? And we know this is the story of the Old Testament. He says then he, he raised Israel. He, he gave them all the things they could possibly need. And, and when Israel got to age, he married her. And said, you're now my bride. And he gave her jewels and precious things and food and property and just everything that Israel could possibly want. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful picture. And then it turns. And he says, well, you took all my gifts, all the good things I gave to you, and you hoard yourself out. You went and you sought others to give my gifts to you. In fact, the rest of the chapter is condemnation because God says, I gave and I gave and I gave, and all I got back was contempt. All I got back was hatred. And God promises justice on them. That is what our sin is. We have repaid the God of life, the God of the universe, the God of this creation. We have repaid him with rebellion and sin. Each and every one of us has done that. None of us has an excuse. We all lie at the base of that statement. No one is righteous. No, not one. And once we understand that, a statement like this, well, it blows our minds. For God so loved. We have not earned that love. That is not a love that God should give to us. That's not a love we can presume upon. That's not a love that we, we should go, well, that makes sense. That is a love that makes no sense at all. It's a love that when we look at it, we think, well, why, God? Why would you love us? And ultimately, it's a question that I can't answer you. The extent of his love is incredible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There is so much packed in the sense. That's why I'm only preaching one verse, by the way. I was going to try to preach the whole section, but once I started preparing the sermon, I was like, nope. I guess one verse is going to have to do it for today. He gave his only son. Or if you have a King James version, his only begotten son. And that's good for theological purposes, right? Because we, we know that God doesn't necessarily have only one son, depending on how you want to use that word son. We even know that we're sons and daughters of God. Even the angels in the Old Testament in different places are called sons of God. But Jesus is a special, unique son. Only begotten of the essence and the sameness of the Father of which we are not and the angels are not. Christ shares something with God that we will never share, and that is his being, his nature. That, that's why those old versions seem to capture that idea better. I mean, I've even say like maybe one and only, or his unique son. 
it's only begotten as a sense of his from his own flesh. That they share that. So for God to send his son is to send himself. For God to send his only begotten son is to bring himself down from heaven to earth. To offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. That's exactly what he was alluding to when we looked last week when he said he must be lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpents. It's not just lifted up so all might see him, but it's a reference to the manner in which he will die. Crucified, lifted up, humiliated, and killed. He is lifted up so that we might be saved. Now we'll come back to that in a second because that, that is the immensity of God's love that he offers himself for us. But we need to just linger a little bit on one word here. And that word is world. So it's actually a deceptively controversial word. And I say deceptively controversial because you might not, not know why it's so controversial. And to be honest with you, I don't want to linger on it. This world, world is specifically used by Jesus to shock Nicodemus. Like I told you, Nicodemus has a lot of presumptions. And being a devout Pharisee and a devout Jew, well, who is God's love meant for? Israel, right? The Jews, definitely they. So when God says, I love the world, well, that is a shocking statement. What do you mean you love the world? What do you mean you love the Gentiles as well as us? Surely we are your people. Jesus begins to unravel before Nicodemus has the, the wonderful scope of the sacrifice of Christ that applies not to one little nation there in the Middle East, but to every part of this globe, every aspect of his creation. In fact, it's probably best captured in the book of Revelation, where near the end, uh, John has given this incredible vision of the throne of God and those who worship at it, and we have these verses, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God's people will no longer just be tribal, but they will comprise of every nation, every language, and every tribe on this planet. We are a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-whatever people because God has desired to draw his flock from such. Now it's important to understand the scope and the limits of this word because even the limits of this word are shown to us in our text. In terms of love, in terms of those whom God loves with a ferocious, special, deep love, those that he will save, those that are his people, which are similar to how Israel is talked about in the scriptures. And I need to just illustrate this to you because there's a misconception we have. You know, we, we say the, the phrase, God loves everybody. And there's a sense of truth to that, but not the whole truth. God might love everybody, but he does not love everybody the same. It's the 
the plain fact of the Word of God. And most clearly is this fact seen, not just in the Gospel, not just in the book of Revelation or the New Testament, but in the life of Israel. It is ridiculous to say that he loved Egypt like he loved Israel, right? No, of course not. He far loved Israel more. In fact, it's best captured in Isaiah 43, where the words itself are said to us. So, it's such an important thing I need to get to, and I need to show you in Scripture, so you don't think I'm making mm-hmm. things up. Um, he says to them, uh, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and the, through the rivers, they shall mm-hmm. overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. He loves his people Israel so much that there's no people that he wouldn't exchange for them. Egypt, Cush, Sheba, they're nothing. You're mine. I'll give you all things. And he does it because he gives us his reasons. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. The general love of God might apply to all his creation, but the special love of God is to those that he set his salvation on. Those who taste of the wonders of Jesus Christ. They have come to believe and know his name because it is them that will not perish but have eternal life forever. The world here is a reference to the scope of the love of God and that it will touch every nation. But it is not necessary that it touch every single individual. Because you know that not all will be saved. We need to understand the limits and the scope. And the limit is explained to us in our text. Because those who are saved are those who believe. Those who believe will not perish but have eternal life. It is those who set their sights on Jesus Christ. Who have looked at him and understood the wonders, the depth of who he is. And said, Lord, I give you my everything. I give you my all. I lay myself at your feet. Because there is salvation in no one else but you. It is those of every tribe and nation who come and see their Savior whom God will reap a harvest of. And it is those that he loves with his special, jealous, ferocious love that will not let them go. And they are precious in his eyes. It doesn't mean that they are better than anyone else because they aren't. Because that is our gospel. There is none righteous, no, not one. But we are saved merely because God has shown us grace. There's something conscious to talk about, and, and that's why, again, I, I just want to remind you that we celebrate the, the Reformation, because these concepts really were recaptured 500 years ago of being lost for so long. The concept of grace as a gift. Not something to be earned, but freely given by God. Because that's what grace is. Grace is, is something you haven't earned. It is given freely from a God who sovereignly says, Take, I give it to you. Faith, even as we understand it from Ephesians, and even from the text that we're looking at here in John 3, is even the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because unless you are born again, well, you cannot see God. Unless the Spirit has 
regenerated your heart. Has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh and eyes to see. You will not see. Now I need to put these things again into perspective. So I, I dump ahead like this, guys. Just forgive me. I go around. But I, I come back to the point in the end. The point I'm trying to make to you is that God is at work. His love is incomprehensible because we did not deserve it. And every aspect of our salvation means glory for Him and none for us because every aspect of it tells us that He has done it all. He has opened our eyes through His Spirit. He has provided the sacrifice that takes away sins in His love. He has provided His Son who redeems us, who accomplishes exactly what He comes to do. I think I've told you before, I once heard a sermon where the guy says, Jesus didn't come to die. And there was a whole point of his sermon, right? And it's a weird point for a priest to try, to try to make, right? It's all about how Jesus, no, he didn't come to die, he came to speak and save the lost. And you wonder where he's going with that, right? Like, what do you mean? Because isn't the way he came to speak and save the lost through dying? And so he goes the whole sermon and he gets his point at the end. He's like, so, if Jesus came to speak and save the lost, we too must speak and save the lost. And how can you speak and save the lost if you have a, a bad car to drive around in? You know, surely if you're going to speak and say the lost, you've got to have a BMW. You, I don't know how you got there either. <laughs> but the point is, he misses the point of the gospel, and so many preachers like that do, is they will call up Jesus, they will twist him, they will malign him, as though he came to earth for any other reason. He came to earth to die. He came to give his life as an exchange for ours. Two ways, or two authors that I'd like to just quote on this. The first is a, a middle, middle-aged, middle-aged? Dark Ages. This is the word Dark Ages author. And the reason I want to use him is because often we think that, you know, that thousand-year period from 500 to the Reformation was just dark. There's no light in it. But there's a few sparks of light always, because God will always have his people who love him. And this guy was named uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, or... If you're not into change, it's just Bernard of Leveau. And he wrote a, a book called Why Should We Love God? Now this is a section from me. He says, the, the first reason we should love God is his title to our love. Could any title be greater than this, that he gave himself for us unworthy wretches? And being God, what better gifts could he offer than himself? Hence, if one seeks for God's claim upon our love, sorry, if one seeks for the claim upon our love, Sarah is the cheapest because he loved us first. Ought he not to be loved in return when you think who loved, whom he loved, and how much he loved? For who is he that loved, the same of whom every spirit testifies, that of my God, my goods are nothing unto thee? And is it not his love, that wonderful charity which seeketh not her own, but for whom which was a, <coughs> but for whom was such unutterable love made manifest? The apostle tells us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So it was God who loved us, loved us freely, and loved us while we were yet enemies. And how great was His love for us. St. John answers, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in us should not perish, but have everlasting life. St. Paul adds, He said, not His only Son, but deliver Him up for us all. And the Son says Himself, greater love has no man that he laid down his life for his friends. 
His point is this, you should love God because you loved us first. He showed us incredible love in Christ. And he quotes there Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 5, brothers and sisters, if you want to memorize a chapter, memorize that chapter. There's a section in the middle where it speaks about who, who you should give your life up for, right? And it says, well, you know, if you have to give your life for someone, maybe you look for a godly person, right? Or maybe for a righteous person you would die. You know, that's why bodyguards might know, serve a president they respect. Or maybe it's just their job. Maybe they're doing it for money. In that case, money's worth their life. But for yourself, just think of it for a second. Who would you give your life up for? Who would you jump in front of a bullet to save? Maybe your loved ones? Family, friends? How about a complete stranger you didn't know? How about an enemy? Probably not, right? You might even trip them. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is Christ died for us not when we were our best, not when we were fine, not when we were good, but Romans 5 tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he offered his body and his blood not for friends, but for enemies. He came to us at our weakest, most possible moments. We were far from God. Prodigals all. And he offered himself. Trevor Wax, who's a wonderful writer, and he also blogs at um, the Gospel Coalition website. And whatever book of his I'd recommend you read, Times of the Gospels, fantastic book. And he has this quote where he speaks of the, the death of Jesus like this. Because Jesus was filled with horror and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are filled with wonder and cry out, My God, my God, why have you accepted me? Because Jesus cried, Father, forgive, the taunts we hold of him on the cross are transformed into praises for his generous mercy. Because Jesus said, I thirst, we can drink from the fountain of living water and never thirst again. Because Jesus said, Woman, behold your son, and felt the pain of separation from his earthly family, we can experience the blessing of being united with the Heavenly Father. Because Jesus cried, it was finished. Our new life can begin. Because Jesus committed his spirit into his Father's hands, God commits his spirit into our hearts. Everything Jesus gives up on the cross is given as rich bounty for our sake. Everything that he alone has earned he shares with us. The giving of his only son is really an incomprehensible statement to us because it will take us forever to unpack what it means that he could do that. We could drive ourselves silly pondering the questions of why and ultimately we just have to accept that God loves even those who don't deserve it. I always sort of like to use stark examples because sometimes, again, it doesn't hit home to us because maybe, maybe you don't think you're that bad, right? And I say I harp on this because this is such an important part of understanding this, is that when you look in the mirror, you're not the hero of your story, but Jesus is. That when you look at yourself, you realize, I am a sinner saved by grace. And every breath I have, everything I do, every moment of my life is a gift from Him simply because He is loved. 
and that if you are saved, if you have believed and cast yourself upon him, it is not from something that you earned or something that you did, but wholly of his hand. Remember the thief on the cross. Right, the, the one who, who cries to Jesus, remember me this day. And Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know that story, right? It's a lovely story. And I often use it as this example, but have you thought deeper about that story? Have you thought about that thief? Because he himself acknowledges he's there because he's earned it. He knows he's being crucified and he deserves to be where he is. Would you be so charitable with a thief who robbed you? Or someone who wronged you in such a way? I mean, that thief has made his own bed. He should lie in it. Why should he be the one to taste grace just at the 11th hour, right? And isn't that how we think? At least how I think. Maybe he has a, a better example. Uh, I always get the serial killer's name wrong. I'm going to say Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys know him, eh? He was a pretty rough guy. He killed something like 17 boys and men and did things that are not worth repeating with their bodies. But he was rightly jailed and convicted. And it was said in jail that he was given a Bible and he started to read it. And he called a local pastor and can you imagine being that pastor to get that call? Hey, a serial killer wants to speak to you. It would be a great call to answer. <laughs> and, uh, and so this pastor went and he began to minister and counsel and, and preach to Jeffrey Dahman. And by all accounts, it seems as though he got saved. Right? Uh, it seems that he became a good model prisoner after that until he was killed by another prisoner. And I always remember what the guy said at his funeral, and I always tell the story so much, I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but it just, it always touches my heart for the right reasons. Because at his funeral, that same pastor preached, he says, many people resented the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer could ask the question, is heaven for me too? And he's right, but I resent that fact. Surely hell is made for people like Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Hell is this for serial killers who kill little boys. Am I not correct? Does not resonate with you? Certainly, hell is for rapists. Hell is for thieves who deserve crucifixion. And there's only that the gospel might rest upon our hearts where we can make the statement, well, then hell is for me too. Because if I am left to my own devices, if God were to leave me in my sin, I am no worse than Jeffrey Dahmer in his eyes. And I too deserve his judgment for all eternity. It is when we can look at ourselves and understand that that statement is true, that we deserve judgment and hell as much as a serial killer and a rapist, because our hearts have lived in rebellion against God, that suddenly the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ becomes immeasurably, wonderfully, incredibly great so far beyond our imagination that God could look at someone like us, someone like me and someone like you, and say, I love you. Here is my son. Here is my spirit. Look and see. For God so loved the world. These are statements to linger by. To spend a while reflecting on. And I want that for you today. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, 
we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's where we need to understand and get to again. As Christians, we don't move on from it. That's a, a truth and a well we keep feeding from because it's the grace of God and the wonder of Christ. For those who have never tasted on it, well then, this is the challenge of the verse today because it's a verse that begs challenge. For those who believe they will not perish, but they will have everlasting life, eternal life. And that eternal life is so much deeper and wonderful and more joyful than you could ever imagine. For some, when I use the word eternal life, you think of playing a harp on a cloud. Right? And that seems pretty boring unless you don't know how to play a harp. And you're like, okay, well I can learn for a few years in heaven to play a harp. But that's not eternal life. Eternal life is such a much more incredible concept than just a quantity of time. In eternal life, you get your soul's desire. You get the fulfillment of why you were made. You get to know God and Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's Psalm 17 verse 3, right? This is eternal life. This is about know you, the only God and Jesus Christ, your Son. Eternal life is hidden in God. That means as infinite as God is, so is the life He gives you. As dead as you were before, you will receive life and abundance afterwards. And life is life, and life is truth, and life is joy and peace and happiness for all eternity. It is life built up and breathed into in renewal. It is life that, that we can barely begin to scratch the surface of comprehending. Because it is life and joy as God has always intended for us those whom he loves and he says grace upon. It is pure and loving and everything that we were created to enjoy. So, for those of you who do not know your Savior, there is your command to leave. Look at him and look and look and look until you've looked your eyes away. Cast your hope and everything you have upon him. And those of you who have believed will come afresh and drink of his grace and his mercy. Come remind yourselves of who you were and what he has done. That's Ephesians 2. Paul starts with who you were and then that wonderful verse 4, but God. And we remind ourselves of the grace of Christ, the wonders of his love, and refresh ourselves from the wonders of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, again, we come before you and we ask and we plead and we beg that you would show us your Son, Jesus Christ, clearer and clearer. Lord, that his sacrifice, Lord, his life, his resurrection and his current ministry at the right hand of you, Lord, would be dear to our hearts. Lord, that he would be everything to us. But again, we have a high estimation of him, a high regard for him, and a very low regard for ourselves, Lord. Because he is everything. And as we know in your scriptures, and we see in your servant John the Baptist, Lord, we would ask for more of him and less of us. Won't you help us in this, Lord? 
Joseph Rachel's sacrifice and the fresh love, your incredible love, your wonderful love that defies our expectations and defies even our understanding. Let us bathe in it, Lord, and may be a fire in our bones. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time and ask that you are be with us the rest of this week. In your name. Amen. Lastly, won't you stand together and we'll close in the benediction. I mean, if you don't rush off, we have biscuits. <laughs> we also have tea, I suppose. I think there's, uh, there's hot water, because uh, Alina did bring a flask. So if you'd like a cup of tea or coffee, that is uh, well, it's a possibility if you get there quickly. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, for Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Have a blessed day.